the exciting thing about the 21st century. There's so many opportunities for missionaries in media, uh, just the whole gamut of how the 21st century missionary can present the gospel and proclaim boldly that Christ is Lord. Today on First Person, you'll meet a man who, as the child of missionaries, grew up in the jungles of the Philippines, but now he's an anthropologist and a dean at Biola University. Dr. Doug Penoyer will join us in a few moments. Welcome to this week's First Person Interview. I'm Wayne Shepherd. When you visit us online at firstpersoninterview.com, you'll not only read more about the guests you hear on this program, but you'll be able to go back and listen to any previous interview at your convenience. The complete archive is there, along with a schedule of upcoming programs. Just go to firstpersoninterview.com. And then you'll also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. There you can see what others are saying and leave your own comments. Facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. I met Dr. Doug Penoyer through the ministry of the Far East Broadcasting Company, where both of us serve on the FEBC board. As I've gotten to know Doug and his story, it has only added to my appreciation for him. Today, he is an anthropologist and dean of the Cook School of International Studies at Biola University in Los Angeles, and that's where we met to talk. Well, I, I am an anthropologist. I started out going all the way from kindergarten through the Ph.D. in anthropology, as I like to say, with one year off for good behavior. <laughs> How did it start in kindergarten, though? Well, I was always a curious child, interested in things, interested in other cultures, and... Um, you know, just all the way through, I, I wanted to know about people and the values they held. And my parents went to the mission field. And so, you know, the, the, there was the discovery of the Negrito Pygmy culture. And I grew up in a village and, and that was exciting. And so I, I parlayed that experience into a PhD in anthropology. So it did start early for you. Oh, it did. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so you're naturally curious. Yeah. About, my about my mother what? loves to tell the story of, uh, uh, one time I stuck my finger in a, in a, in a light bulb socket and got shocked <laughs> as a very young child. And <laughs> You don't need a degree in anthropology to, for me to tell you that. <laughs> no, no, but it's that curiosity, you know, the desire to discover for myself just exactly how people think, and uh, that's anthropology, too. Mm. Is that how you define it? Well, anthropology is a study of culture and customs at its very basis. Um, you know, it's a social science. But it, it's the discovery that I've always been interested in. That's why I went to study a, a tribe that ran on sight of strangers, and hmm. and I had that experience in the jungle. All right, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Oh, we okay. have to talk about that. But, okay, so you have this natural sense of curiosity, and you decide to uh, that is your field of study, anthropology, mm-hmm. but you grew up as an MK. How do you, is the right, right word, reconcile those two, or <laughs> how do those work together? Well, actually, they work together really well because growing up as a child in a village, then I, uh, you know, I hunted quail. I became like a Negrito pygmy child, and, and that gave me the the basis for studying anthropology formally. Because in the classroom, I ha- I had a cabinet in my mind for everything the professor was talking about. I could always relate it back to my other culture. You had an advantage over the other students in that way, then. I think so. Yeah. yeah. All right, so tell me about growing up. Where did this happen? Well, it happened in, in the Philippines, north of Manila, in Mount Pinatubo, which is famous, of course, for the volcano that, mm-hmm. that blew in the 1990s uh, and buried the village that I grew up in called Villar. 
So my parents went to the field with New Tribes Mission, and then they went to minister among the Negrito Pygmy Tribe, or the Aita people as they're called, um, in the shadow of Mount Pinatubo. And so we lived in a village there where they worked. Were there any? Was there anybody else like you that in in that work, or were they all native Filipinos? Well, I grew up with a very healthy self-image. There wasn't another white kid around for for at least a hundred miles. But you probably didn't know that was out of the ordinary. Um, well, yeah, I, I did. I did it away because you know I went to the village school, and I was the only the only foreigner, the only white kid there. Uh, and everywhere I went, I was always unique, you know, different. Hmm. But I, I enjoyed that role, and but I also enjoyed growing up speaking the tribal language and the national language mm-hmm. as well. I'm interested that you went to the village school. You didn't go off to a boarding school someplace. And, you know, in your era, I would think that missionaries very often sent their kids to boarding school or even were required to. Well, I had that experience, too, later on. Uh, but way up in the, in the village, I mean, sometimes during the rainy season, you simply couldn't get out. And... Uh, but we were also taught at home by mom. I, I was reading by age four, and and uh, we th- we thought growing up that that you read all the way from A to Z in the encyclopedia set. And only later did I find out that other kids didn't have that experience. <laughs> that was your entertainment too, probably <laughs> yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, any brothers and sisters? I have two older sisters. My oldest sister went with SIL, and my. Uh, the, the next oldest sister went uh, with AIM in Africa for okay. many years. All right, so you are the lone white boy on in this native village, uh, pretty primitive, huh? Uh, yes. You know, I learned how to shoot the bow and arrow, um, and got lucky with my first uh, kill on a chicken that was running around the village. <laughs> Were you supposed to shoot the chicken? <laughs> yeah, I was. Okay. They were they were chasing it and trying to kill okay. it. <laughs> the funny thing is, years later, when I went back to visit, they were telling stories about me, and they stood up and they told the story of me, uh, you know, shooting the chicken. <laughs> but in other fables. <laughs> <laughs> the stories grow over time, too, yeah, I would do. imagine, right? In they any do. culture. <laughs> but mom taught us at home. So, you know, I did go to the village school. It was an agricultural school, and so we learned a lot about plants and those kinds of things, and uh, but really, the real education took place. At what home. was day to day life like for you then, growing up? Well, my parents decided it was too dangerous for me to roam around, you know, outside the village, and so they did a very, uh, I think, a very good thing that they brought in about a fifteen-year-old to be my constant guide and companion, and that was a smart move because uh, I almost lost my life in a whirlpool, and he pulled me out, mm. and. Uh, to this day, I owe my life to him. Hmm. Boy, that sounds scary. So you get up in the morning, and I did what other kids did. We we had a, a, a quail trap line that we, we went out to visit. Uh, we used our slingshots, and we shot at birds and fried up little animals and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, parents, as missionaries, that means that you were um, exposed to the gospel from the beginning. When did, when did faith in, in Christ become real for you, though, Doug? Well, I was in a in the Fout Springs training camp. New Tribes Mission had a training camp way up in the mountains in a series of cabins. In the Philippines? Uh, no, in the States. In the States, okay. Fout, Fout Springs, California. And there was some visiting, the way I remember it, it was a visiting speaker or something, and it was a Sunday night service. And, and this was a real health and fire brimstone type 
preacher, and uh, I do remember going home and telling mom I didn't want to go to hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I got on the right side of the kingdom Yeah, very quickly. Yeah, it was much the same for me. How old were you at that time? I was five. Okay, you were younger than I was even. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But it stuck. It stuck. It stuck, really stuck. There's a funny story from that training camp because— they wanted us to eat uh, sweet potatoes because we were going to a sweet potato tribal society. And so I hated sweet potatoes. So they gave us a bag. And uh, one time when my parents weren't looking, I rolled that little bag to the edge of a cliff near our cabin and rolled that sucker away. <laughs> <laughs> my mother happened to be watching out the oh, Be and, sure your sin will and, find you out. Huh? retrieved it. But when we went to the Degredo Pygmies, they were a sweet potato society, and one, one time we ran out of food, and the river was high, and Dad couldn't get out, and so we, for a whole month I was eating sweet potatoes. <laughs> Did you ever have any trouble living in two worlds like that? Uh, I don't think so. I think the advantage I had maybe over some other MKs is I always came back to the U.S. to the same school. And I think coming back to the same school, this is Krista Ministries in North Seattle, uh, King's, King's High School. Mm-hmm. And so I was there for the early years, kindergarten, first started first grade, and then came back for uh, fifth and sixth, part of fifth and sixth, and then back again to finish off in 11 and 12. So I knew some of those, some of those kids there. And uh, yeah, there were some adjustments. Every MK has to make adjustments with the foot in each world. Hmm. So when you, when it, did come time to go to college, did you know that your field of study was going to be what where you ended up? No, no. I thought I was going to be a history teacher. So I took a small basketball scholarship to Cascade College in Portland, Oregon, a small Christian school, uh, which actually went defunct our our senior year. Uh, lost its accreditation our, our junior year, and we transferred, and then I graduated. But when I, grad, when, when I transferred that one year to Western Oregon University to finish out our college, I took an anthro course, and, and it, I, I got hooked. It that clicked, was it. Huh? And he just happened to be talking about the African pygmies. So everything he said about Africa, I related back to Mount Pinatubo. You had a point of reference. And I said, man, that's, that's, that's where I want to be. That's the field of study. Yeah. You've never lost your love for that tribe, have you? No, I go back all the time, and uh, there's a couple of uh, men there that I count as my brothers. They were raised in, a, in our house, sent to school, and uh, I count them as my brothers. Well, again, I want to talk about your recent experience uh, living with the tribe again, but just let me uh, finish up the story of your education. I mean, you, you undergraduate, graduate work, eventually a Ph.D.? Yeah, you know, once I determined I wanted to get into anthropology, I'd always been interested in it, but uh, I went to the University of Washington and, and talked to the chair, and basically I, I had an undergraduate degree in social science. And he said, Sonny, you know, come into our undergraduate program, and when you finish, take two more years, go into our MA program, and then we'll decide whether you can go on for the PhD. Well, that didn't sit too well with me, so I went over the other side of the mountains to Washington State University, where I was welcomed with open <laughs> open arms. <laughs> <laughs> and finished in in five years with a year and a half in the field. So, and you've never uh, regretted that decision. No, no. Coming up, we'll hear more of Dr. Doug Pinoyer's story, including his experience with remote tribes in the Philippines. Next time on First Person, we'll meet leadership coach Bob Beal. 
Once you can see that your 60s are your most productive decade, your early 50s become a time when you're saying, you know what, what do I need in place yet? So when I'm 60 years old, I've got the base set to have the most significant difference for God I've had in my lifetime. He's the author of Leading with Confidence and many other books for executives. You'll meet Bob Beal next time on First Person. My guest today is Dr. Doug Penoyer, who is a dean at the Cook School of International Studies at Biola University. Our conversation took place in the Bowman Media Center, and I asked Doug to tell me about the sabbatical he took to return to the Philippines. Well, first of all, I'm very grateful to Dr. Barry Corey, who is a great commission president, and my my provost, uh, David Nystrom, for allowing me to take some time off to go back to a tribe that I investigated in 1973 in 1974, and then another visit in 83. It's a tribe that ran on sight of strangers. And, um, you know, I was a young, brash anthropologist, and so I I didn't want to just have an ordinary field experience. I wanted to actually uh, investigate a tribe that nobody else had ever ever done an ethnography on. So I went back to the Taubuid on an island south of uh, Manila called Mindoro, Mina de Oro, Spanish gold mine, and in the very heart of that island, there was a tribe called the Talbuid who really ran on sight of strangers, hid their villages, um, built dummy trails. That is hard for us to really understand in the world we live in. But there are people who live like that. There, there still are. Very, the number is decreasing, but there are still people who are afraid of the outside world, yes. Huh. What was the reason? Just non-exposure? Well, there's a variety of reasons, and, and for three months I chased around the jungle. I hired guides from neighboring tribes. I nearly killed myself three times. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you did it, but you were posting on Facebook some of those adventures, and I, yeah. I was on the edge of my seat looking at your photos and hearing what, what well, you were going Well, it was good through. to go back after, you know, 30-some years to, to visit the people and, and, to, and to, to have them tell stories that I had forgotten about in 1973 and 74. But uh, in 73 and 74, I wasted three months just trying to find people. Hmm. And then, like a bolt of lightning out of the sky, God said to me, why don't you go study the 70 who have become Christians? Hmm. <laughs> and I'm so glad I, I did, because if I hadn't studied this group, uh, the non-Christians, if I'd gotten in the villages, would have lied to me and created yeah. a whole culture. How did those 70 hear the gospel? Well, there were missionaries from OMF, uh, Russ and Barbara Reed, who had a similar experience to my experience trying to find the people. And then finally, through, through a 300-year-old story, a death, a death uh, will, an elder died, and he said, you will go find a new teaching. There will be a, you know, a stranger, a white man with a book. Really? And you will follow his... So for 300 years... People, this particular people group within the Talbot tribe, were searching for the fulfillment of that prophecy. Unbelievable. And it's a longer story, but uh, the Reeds have described it in, in, in a book that she wrote. Uh, it's a marvelous story of how 70 people came forward one day for salvation hmm. when the fulfillment of the prophecy of a man speaking their language in a book and so on. Marvelous story. So in the 70s, you, uh, you zeroed in on these dear people. I did. I zeroed in on them because, and frankly, I got thrown out of so many villages. I was cursed, um, and it, it just became 
evident that I needed to settle down in one village and and learn why the people were so fearful. Hmm. What kind of a culture creates that kind of fear of the outside world? And, and that, what what did you find? Well, uh, first of all, they believe that outsiders are kidnappers. And, um, you know, outsiders, uh, and there's some historical basis for that because uh, during the Spanish times, you know, 1520 to 1898, plantations were the big thing on the island of Mindoro, and so the Spanish would raid the tribes, bring people down to work on their plantations. They were made slaves? Yes. Really? And then during <laughs> the American period, uh, there were also Americans who, who may have taken advantage of the Taubuid, um, you know, and wanted them to work on their plantations. Hmm. So I collected life histories and stories and discovered that these people were hunted by outsiders. They were captured. And so that created some fear. What led to your acceptance by them? Well, the, the fact that I was a Christian, because they had become Christians, and the fact that I was, I was uh, allowed to, to stay in the missionary's house in the village I then became an accepted part of, of that culture, of mm-hmm. the missionary culture. And I ask you about daily life growing up uh, in the tribe that you grew up in. How about daily life in this group? Oh, daily life in this group. Uh, before they were Christians, they would wake up in the morning and chant to the spirits for half an hour to an hour, then go to the fields. And if anything happened there in the fields that indicated there might be a spirit presence, they just automatically came home. And when they came home, they would also chant to the spirits at night. So when they became Christians, they adopted this, this every day is, is a, is a two-service day. So living in the village as an anthropologist, I, I had see. church in the morning and church in the <laughs> you evening. You didn't have to convince them of that. At <laughs> four times on Sunday. <laughs> it was bred in them, huh? Yeah. The other reason why they were so fearful is the fact that, that the enemy, uh, you know, the, the, the devil, uh, they worship spirits, and they were so afraid of of sickness, and, and in, their, in their culture, everything happened, happened uh, is related to the spirits. Hmm. And so, the, you know, the gospel light had to, had, had to shine and break, break that hold so that they could, they could feel free from these spirits. And they believed that strangers were spirits. Yeah. And when you went in the interior, you had to walk around, the, you had to walk on the pathway of the rivers. And again, they believed that spirits came up the rivers, and spirits had little packs. Just like they once so it, did to take them slaves. Yeah, yeah. sure. So right. if you're walking up the river and you're carrying a pack, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you're a spirit. They've got you figured out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's that, wow. that, that fear thing, which disappeared when they became Christians. Yeah. So many years later, you go back uh, to the same people or different people? Same people. During your sabbatical. Same people. Same. So they. how long had you been gone? Let's see. The last time was there was uh, 1983, and I came back in, in 2012. I'm stunned because what was that like for you, and what was it like for them? What, there must have been some who remembered you, of course. Oh, there were kids in the village named Doug. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they weren't my children, by the way. This would clarify that. But, but yes, um, I hadn't had any contact with them. I uh, hadn't gone back, and and... I was absolutely overwhelmed. I would stand up. There's six villages instead of the, the three that I had vi- visited in 83. And um, I went to each, hiked in, rappelled off the edge of a cliff to be able to get to one. 
um, and I was welcomed with open arms. And when I would stand up in their churches and talk in Tagalog and Taubuid, you know, tears would just overcome me because I owed these people my professional career. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote the ethnography based on informants and what they what they told me about their culture. And it's just this overwhelming sense of I'm their storyteller because I captured what their grandfather said. And so I would play tapes and stories. We had a wonderful time together. We fellowshiped in a Christian way, and we also just had fun listening to some of the old tapes I had recorded. You had retained the language. I had retained, well, I had retained enough to carry on conversation. I was never fluent in the language because I had nine months to do my anthropological work, and I knew Tagalog, so I used Tagalog, and I learned, I learned um, enough language to be able to do my anthropological field work. Can I put you on the spot? Can you recite a verse of Scripture or maybe John 3.16 or oh something? Give me something. Uh, I, I want to hear uh, the language. I, I can probably talk for just a minute or okay. so. Okay, all right. That person is a very good person. And how many people speak that language? Well, there are about 10,000 now on two sides of the island. Still pretty small. Still pretty small, yeah. But they have the New Testament translated, and SIL is working on the Old Testament. Yeah. Doug, are you grateful to God for the chance not only to be there many years ago, but to go back and to to see what uh, what impact you had had all those years ago? Oh, it's just overwhelming, and also my my appreciation for the OMF missionaries on the island of Mindoro is just that they were stellar people. Uh, they translated the word. They, they, they came into the culture, but they did not insist on changing the culture. For example, when I was doing fieldwork in 73 and 74, the elders came to ask me a question, and, and the missionary had told me, let them discover, you know, through the Spirit what they should do. So I was very careful not to, not to impact the culture, and the missionary had that philosophy, tremendous philosophy of letting them discover in Scripture how their church should run. And now you're training young people. And many of them will become missionaries, maybe uh, in different parts of the world, but none and in different kinds of work, but missionaries nonetheless. Yes, and that's the exciting thing about the 21st century. There's so many opportunities for missionaries in media, um, in development, in preaching the gospel, teaching in theological institutions. Uh, just a whole gamut of of how the 21st century missionary can present the gospel and proclaim boldly that Christ is Lord. That's Dr. Doug Penoyer, Dean of the Cook School of International Studies at Biola in Los Angeles. Doug also serves as the chairman of the board of the Far East Broadcasting Company. Today's First Person Conversation has been added to the audio archive at firstpersoninterview.com. You can listen anytime. That's firstpersoninterview.com. And if you missed last week's interview with Nabil Qureshi, the author of Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, it's also in the archive. Nabil is a member of Ravi Zacharias' team of speakers. Starting out life as a Muslim, he investigated Christianity thoroughly and eventually came to faith in Christ. Listen online at firstpersoninterview.com. This program is also found on Facebook, where you can leave comments and suggestions. Just go to facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, our guest will be management and executive coach Bob Beal, the author of Leading with Confidence and many other helpful books. Bob is the founder of the Master Planning Group International. 
Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard, inviting you back next time for First Person. 